Hello, I am Toby Haydock, a geek bearing gifts. Oh, what a delight this one is. I jumped on a train to Orpington and got picked up by a tall, bewhiskered man in a van who took me to a tea shop and then showed me around the theatre that he has built in an outbuilding in his own garden. Uh, in between, we had a chinwag about, well, understudying King Lear, playing a fictional character in his natural abode, and um, putting one's hands on one's hips. Uh, I bought him lunch. Good job, really. For if I'd paid him in gold, we might have been in all sorts of trouble. When I'm in a tea shop in Orpington, so... Uh, down. Down, down, down in Orpington. That's important. Down Village is the home of Charles Darwin. He lived here and did all his great works from a house just up the road. Orpington, forget, forget Orpington. Oh, so we're in Never Down. Mention Orpington again. Okay, we're not, we're not, we're not going near Orpington. That's rubbish. We're, we're in Darwin country. Uh, so we'll see how this conversation evolves as I ask my latest victim who he is and why on earth I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Ah, who am I? The eternal question. I'm Christopher Robbie, and you're talking to me about Doctor Who because I created a character called the Cyber Leader years and years ago, and before that I created a character called the Carcass. So between the two, we'll have a conversation. We certainly will, but uh, before you got to be the carcass, you uh, you uh, decided to become an actor. So what was your background and, and what was the thinking there and how did you prosper? Uh, well, um, I went to a school and I remember I went to a school called Sherburn and uh, I acted there in sort of uh, little plays and uh, I decided I would rather like to be an actor. And I approached my English teacher, who was himself a very good amateur actor, and I said, I want to be an actor. And he said, don't be stupid, Robbie, for goodness sake, you come to a school like this to go into the church or the army, not fritter your life away as an actor. So that was the end of that. So I left school, and um, I went up to work for ICI, um, because there was bound to be a career in that, wasn't there? Where is ICI now, I ask you. <laughs> and I went up to work in Manchester. And the extraordinary thing was that I went into an office, just me and one other guy, and we faced each other across the desk. And happenstance, so to speak, he happened to be part of the stage management of an amateur theatre called the Altrincham Garrick, which was quite an eminent amateur theatre, a bit like the Tower Theatre, perhaps, in London. And uh, he was working there, and he discovered my interest in acting, and so I went and joined that company. And uh, I worked there for about two and a half years. Um, I mean, I played in, in, in the theatre there for about uh, over a period of two and a half years whilst I was working for ICI. And then one day I had a mate called James. I, I've forgotten his surname years ago, but and I went one day down to the Garrick and I said where's James? And somebody said he's gone to Rada. And I said he's done what? And they said he's gone to Rada. And I said what's that? And they told me what Rada was and that rather appealed to me. And I wrote to this place called Rada and said I'd like to come too. And I went down did the auditions. Funnily enough I did uh, the bastard speech from Lear. 
and uh, I got into RADA and so it started and that was um, I went down there in 59 I left in 60 and so from 61 onwards I've been an actor and incidentally a television presenter but I mean that's something else and what do you remember of your time at RADA which for maybe um, some of our international listeners might not realise is is the leading uh, drama school in the UK I tell my wife that all the time. She went to Bristol Old Vic. <laughs> it was very, very good. I mean, it was very, very good for me. I didn't like it very much once I was there. But, you know, as soon as I got into rep, and I, almost straight after leaving Radha, I went up to Scotland. I mean, I'm half Scottish. My father was Scottish. And so I felt that I had some sort of a connection with Scotland. And I went up and I started my acting career at Perth Rep, which, again, was a superb rep. And uh, all the pieces that I'd sort of picked up at Rada, which I hadn't really ever put together while I was there, suddenly slotted into place. And I realised how valuable it was. There was an actor teaching there called Peter Barkworth. And Peter Barkworth was um, crazy about technique. To a boring degree, I subsequently discovered when I met other people who actually worked with him in the professional theatre. But it was invaluable. He taught me a technique that has been absolutely invaluable. And other people, I had a wonderful voice teacher called Clifford Turner. And Clifford Turner wrote a book called Voice and Speech in the Theatre. I wish he was around today. He might be employed by the National Theatre, so you could hear some of their actors from the back of the auditorium. Well, Barkworth, I mean, amongst many things, d- uh, did a Doctor Who and gives a quite extraordinary performance. Uh, and I've, I've seen him in a number of things as I've been watching archive telly a lot in the past couple of years. And he is a very precise but quite marvellous actor, I think. It was interesting, really, because when I was doing The Cyberman uh, with, with Tom Baker, um, Peter Barkworth was obviously in something on television. It was a two-part piece. And Tom came in after the first part and was raving about Peter Barkworth and what he was doing. Um, And then I told him how I had been taught technique by Peter Barkworth. And I went through all the sort of gestures that Peter Barkworth would make and the facial expressions he'd make and his relationship with his hands to his face and all these little things. And uh, then a week later, Tom saw the second part of this drama and he came in the following day and said, I couldn't watch, I couldn't watch. He was doing all the things he was saying he was going to do. <laughs> Which was fascinating, but I mean, I could do a beat about it sitting here, but I won't, but this is radio and he said, no, I'm good at doing that, is it? Really? Um, and so once you'd, you'd gone from around it, obviously weekly rep is the thing that all uh, actors uh, who were working in the sort of 50s and 60s talk about. And is that, is that where you really um, sort of learnt versatility and things like that? It's the absolute bedrock of theatre. It really was. And I, I think the fact that it doesn't exist now um, displays itself when you go now to theatre. I mean, this sounds like a crusty old actor talking about things being better in the past, but... It, it, it was a learning ground, and uh, we often did uh, performances in, in an incredibly short time. I mean, people have heard of weekly rep. Well, it was exactly that. You started uh, rehearsing a play, not on the Monday, because on the Monday you dressed to rehearse the previous play, and you opened it that night. So you didn't start your weekly learning and rehearsing until the Tuesday. 
you did the first act on the Tuesday, the second on on the uh, Wednesday, the third on the Thursday, and you did a run through on the Friday and dress rehearsal on the Saturday, and then you did another dress rehearsal if you were lucky on the, on the Monday and open that night. That's what it was about. I mean that was weekly, right? I mean that wasn't something you would want to stay with for long. But nevertheless, it was a, it was a discipline, and. Uh, but, I mean, in an ideal world, in Perth, it was three weeks. But it was a wonderful experience. I mean, uh, Donald Sutherland was in the, the Rep Theatre in Perth when I went up there, just as an example. Um, it, it, it was quite tremendous. I remember Donald Sutherland. Um, I did a play called One More River, and uh, Donald Sutherland, as a sort of greaser, it was, it was a, a, a ship marooned in the jungle, in a river in the jungle. And it was, we were all sweating. And I remember Donald Sutherland telling quite a long story, sitting on the deck of this ship. And I had flu, I had a rather nasty flu. And all I can really recall was the lights of the theatre coming down at me and, and sort of cascading around my eyes. And then this, this great voice of Donald Sutherland telling this wonderful show, this wonderful story. And I've always remembered that. And now Donald Sutherland became Donald Sutherland. Uh, and of course, as well as um, rep theatre, actors in that time were, were looking to break into television. Was that something you consciously wanted to do? or did you... To be honest, no. Um, I've never been comfortable with television, to be honest. I mean, it's all right if you're wandering around to the Doctor Who mask and nobody sort of can see see behind it. Um, one's, one's just a sort of a creature, but as an actor, it's, it's, it's not a favourite um, medium of mine, I don't think. It's, it's, I mean, I, as an actor, I, I, I trained um, at, at RADA to be a stage actor. Um, and I don't have any recollection of traipsing around after leaving RADA to see various agents, specifically to guide me into television. Um, one went to see film people, um, never had very much success there, but um, I don't know, I, I, I'm still not attracted to television. I, I, I mean, I've spent 20 years as a television presenter, so it can't be said that I'm not familiar with television and cameras and things like that, but being a television presenter is essentially if you're skillful enough, it's being yourself, conveying information through yourself. And uh, as an actor, you're so much in the hands of a director, as indeed you are with filming. Um, an actor's not in control, and I think to be a theatre actor, you are at least in control. Okay, you've got, um, you've got a director floating about during, during the rehearsal period, and, and he's essential and valuable. But once you're on your own in the theatre, um, you can begin to weave a performance around the performance you've created in the rehearsal, and it's not always going to be the same. I mean, come back to a performance six weeks after you've started, and it's not going to be the same performance, or you hope it's not going to be the same performance, as it started out on the first night. Because an actor is in control. An actor's working with other actors who are also in control. And so you begin to play between yourselves. You can't really play between yourselves in a, a television or film, it seems to me, simply because the camera is on one person at a time. 
And so it's very difficult to create that sort of a... No. Well, I think it's very difficult. I, I'm, I'm not very good at it, so I don't... To, to, to basically, to answer your question, stop burbling. Um, if I never did television again, it wouldn't bother me at all. But I do like to work. Um, yeah, I think that's what I've got to say on about television. Well, in, in terms of the, the, the presenting thing, that's a curious thing, is because a lot of actors um, that I know are comfortable with acting because it, it, it for them, is a way of um, exposing themselves but, but through a carapace of, of performance or character or whatever. So suddenly to take that away and to... to be yourself in a way takes that crutch that an actor has away so is, is that quite paradoxical or do you see them as very different jobs I think it is probably paradoxical although perhaps I question um, when somebody's in a long running television soap or something I imagine they are relying on an awful lot of what they are um, just a slightly exaggerated version perhaps of what they are I, I think uh, in the theatre if you create a character, you can go way beyond you. Whereas, because one has the curse of having to enter a television play through the medium of a casting person, a casting person is a, a pretty blinkered sort of soul, so far as I can believe. And if you aren't precisely as they imagine the, their director they're working for wants you to be, or the director has given instructions to a certain type of person, um, then you're not going to be chosen, I think. I mean, I, I've often wanted to have the guts to open the door of a casting session for a television, open the door, go no further than the doorway, and simply say, am I right or wrong? <laughs> because I think it really is as blunt as that. I think it's very few and far between of the times when you are not right initially in their eye and you can convince them that you are. I think that happens very seldom. Whereas, we're coming back to rep again, when, when you're in a, a rep company, you are necessarily playing well beyond your range and as a result of that, learning how to play well beyond your range. You're playing perhaps younger than yourself, very more often considerably older than yourself, but you learn this and you learn the technique that allows you to do it without looking foolish, because whatever you say, no actor actually wants to walk on the stage and look like a fool, do they? they, they, they so they're going to work to create as best they can. Well, and I guess um, that leads to um, casting against type. And uh, having spent some time with you, I know that you are not a uh, Ripley-muscled comic book character with a thick German accent, which is what you were when you entered the land of fiction in Doctor Who. So how did that come about? It's a wonderful physique, though, you know. It's <laughs> such a shame I've lost that. <laughs> um, that was strange, wasn't it? Yes, I remember going to be fitted for all that gear. And uh, that was odd. Um, I, th I think it was one of the first television things I ever did. I mean, I might have played a sort of thug in the Avengers or something before then, but I think that was the first time I had to take myself seriously in television. And sort of to take yourself seriously, but built like the carcass was, um, it stretches the imagination a bit. But I did enjoy doing it. Um, with certain limitations, really. And what, what were the limitations? Um, I didn't terribly enjoy working with Patrick Trapp 
I was a young actor, as I say, it was early days for me in television, and I think he made me feel that way. And uh, actors are pathetic with their confidence, and it doesn't take a lot to kick the confidence from under them. And I think I remember that that's what he did to me. I've subsequently worked with his son, who's an absolute delight. Um, but I didn't like the dad, I'm afraid. However, the plus side was young Wendy Padbury. I worked with Wendy Padbury in that, and, and Wendy and I had to have a fight. <laughs> and she, through the method of martial art or some description, was able to throw this magnificent carcass to the ground. And yes, the fight was arranged by B.H. Barry, and it's a rather strange sort of mix of um, sort of judo and uh, and uh, tumbling. And well, it, well, 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 it is. I mean, the likelihood of Wendy Padbury being able to defeat the carcass was remote, but nevertheless, she did. And have you seen the story? It's it's, it's quite it's a very fondly uh, re remembered story of, of of the era. People do enjoy the mind robber. No, I haven't, to be honest. No. Do you I not mean, like watching yourself? No, I don't like watching myself. Um, do, well, do you have any other memories of the mind robber? I'll just throw some of the name. Emrys Jones was the lead, and Bernard Horsfall was. Yeah, it? Yes, I remember. I remember Bernard Horsfall. Um, indeed, I do. Um, I mean, not intimately, but I certainly remember. He's a big man. Uh, crink crinkly blonde hair, as I seem to recall. Yeah. yeah. Who directed? Um, uh, Revenge, the, the, Revenge of the yeah, Cyberman. Yeah. That was Michael E. Bryant. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. He subsequently asked me to do something else uh, for him, and uh, I, w I w w wasn't allowed to be released from Southern Television, I think it was. I was working for Southern Television at the time as a presenter, and uh, they wouldn't let me have leave of absence to go and do it, which was rather a shame. But uh, you, you were able to make history uh, in Revenge of the Cybermen, so you, you missed out on John Pertwee, but you landed uh, in the early days of Tom Baker. I did, I did. Um, I've often been asked what Tom was like, um, with, with the sort of, uh, the implication that he wasn't very easy. Um, he was a delight to work with on that occasion. Maybe he subsequently got a bit fed up. I, d I, I don't know. But everybody who ever asks me, what was Tom Baker like, seems to be asking the question, uh, and in the back of their mind, they have other stories that have been told about him. But he was absolutely fine um, in that. Yes, very, very nice. We, strangely, um, the cast of, of that episode uh, all went off to the Olympia, the Horse of the Year show at Olympia. Yes. I really can't remember why, but we did. Um, and I went, of course, as a cyber leader. Um, and there were pretty girls wandering around, giving away gifts of aftershave and deodorant and all this sort of stuff, because I think it was um, being sponsored by, oh, I don't know, somebody who made those things. And uh, I didn't get anything, you see, because I was a machine. And um, machines don't need aftershave. And I sort of rather lamented this point with Tom, and he shared what he had been given with me. 
Oh. And I thought that was very nice. Very nice. Absolutely. Well, the cyber leader, he, he is unique amongst um, Doctor Who's pantheon of cybermen uh, in terms of it was the only time that you played a cyberman and you were the, the first uh, person who played a cyberman to provide their voice. So you created your very own template. Was that? Did you bring all of that to the table, or was, did Michael make suggestions? Do you recall how the performance style evolved? No, I, I think I brought the voice, whether it works or not. I, I, I'm responsible for that. It did occur to me that um, <laughs> a cyber leader shouldn't be speaking with a public school voice, you see, even a rather trained public school voice. And so I tried to sort of make a, a mid-Atlantic voice, um, something that was, as a result of that, reasonably neutral. Um, so yes, I, I, I don't think we'll, we'll uh, make it Michael's error, if that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a curious one, because we do... Because there's occasionally there's been an actor who's played a Doc 2 monster, um, where uh, um, uh, Derek Dedman, I remember, played a, a Sontaran, and he's a very Cockney ac- actor, and people go, oh, there's a Cockney Sontaran... It seems to be that for some reason, if if a monster isn't RP, it surprises us. But why why should that be? Because not not as you say, not all aliens will surely have gone to Rata. Well, well, absolutely right. And for that very reason, I, I thought the voice should be what I did. Um, perhaps I could have done. I don't know. I suppose I could have done it like that. <laughs> that would have been even harder, wouldn't it? Really. <laughs> Um, but you know, I, I, I did what I did, and, and, and it seems to have caught on. I mean, people always talk about the accent, so presumably it worked. Well, it's when you have to say cyber bums, you see. <laughs> you, in fact, you alluded to the fact that you didn't quite mind the fact that you were hidden, hidden away. You were, you were happy to not have your face seen. Yes, I think I was. Well, yes, I think I was perfectly happy with that because you know, in Doctor Who, even if, if your face was seen, it would be a green face or a face with hair sprouting from funny places or aerials coming out of the top of your head or something, wouldn't it? So, I mean, in in those days, it, it wouldn't have been very normal unless one was sort of behind the scenes as a as a controller, so to speak. They were reasonably normal, I think. Um, no, I, I think I was. It, it was very claustrophobic. One of the chaps in it, the, uh, one of the other cyber, one of, one of my men, um, fainted. He got claustrophobia and suddenly there was a cyber man lying on the floor, prostrate, um, running out of oxygen. Yeah. You were made of sterner stuff. Oh, absolutely. Well, I was the carcass, you see. <laughs> <laughs> and do you have any other memories of, uh, of, of life on the Nerva Beacon with Tom Baker and Ronald Lee Hunt and William Marlowe? No, I, I remember uh, uh, liking Liz Sladen a lot. I thought she was a, she was a lovely girl. And uh, it's very sad that, that she's no longer here. Um, I found her very nice. Um, Tom was absolutely fine. And... Um, Otherwise, you know, the other thing, of course, um, when you are a machine, when your face is not there, when you're actually on set as, as what you are, there's not a lot of communication with the other actors. Not a lot of facial expressions pass between you, really. Sure, sure. Um, and, but, but as you say, he has caught on, and we, we, we had a brief chat before we started recording, that, yes, there is a book. Uh, you were always mentioned in the sort of people columns, so, so you had been aware of that sort of cult status within the cult that is Doctor Who. Well, initially I wasn't, no. I mean, uh, what was the name of the chap I told you came Dominic May. That's right, Dominic May came down, came down to my cottage here in Kent, and, and we sat in the garden and he interviewed me, and... Uh, 
the result of the interview was a book called Christopher Robbie, a, a celebration, which was absolutely amazing. He sent it to me, and then I saw these cartoons. No, I, I was completely unaware uh, <laughs> that what I had done had created the cartoon and created the sort of image, apparently, so I've subsequently been told, of a gay believe. <laughs> Well, it takes all sorts to make up the universe. Well, of course it does, and just because I put my hands on my hips, which is a good place for machines to have their hands, apparently I'm gay, so, okay, so be it. Well, uh, equal opportunities and all that. Absolutely right, yeah. Perhaps perhaps I should have married one of my mates. (laughs) (laughs) The cyber-civil partnership. (laughs) Absolutely, yeah. Um, And, of course, Doctor Who is... What uh, you very kindly agreed to meet me and talk about, but it's uh, it's uh, you know two small entries on your CV. We talked before, but I think it's something that is remarkable that you experienced that a lot of actors don't is that the listeners may not be aware that you have played. Not only have you played King Lear, you have played King Lear for the Royal Shakespeare Company, the leading Shakespeare company in the world. Uh, having done that dream thing of your understudying a very famous actor, in this case Robert Stevens, and he doesn't make the first night, and you go on the first three nights. Was it? Yes, I seem to think it was the first three nights. Um, it's, it's, it's all a bit of a blur, those, those, those first days. Um, certainly, it was the most extraordinary experience because, as you say, I was understudying him. Um, I didn't even know what he looked like, to be honest. When we all gathered together as a company on the first day um, to meet each other, um, John Barton was there. Now, John Barton is a great uh, uh, Shakespearean sage who um, lectures frequently within the Royal Shakespeare Company, did then, perhaps still does. Um, And he was this tall man with a grizzled grey hair, and he had a beard. And I thought, perhaps he was Robert Stevens. I mean, I was that naive about who Robert Stevens was. Although I'd seen him as a young man in Royal Hunt of the Sun, where he was quite and absolutely magnificent. Um, But, funnily enough, when I was offered the understudy part, because being an actor who's bummed around a bit, and I was sort of in my mid-fifties, um, there is a question, I suppose, as to whether you want to understudy anybody, who the hell it is, you know, whether you want to study Olivier, for that matter, because, you know, you, you, you've got your own persona, you've been around for a long time, do you want to do this? And um, I sort of cogitated about this, and... Um, I spoke to several people. I remember speaking to the actress Rosemary Harris, and she said, take it. If you're understudying Robert Stevens as Lear, you're going to play Lear, because such was his reputation. Um, he wasn't a, a well man, and uh, the chances of him not making an 18-month season were probably quite high. And then I thought, well, as an actor, and you're given the actual chance, or you might be given the chance, of playing King Lear for the Royal Shakespeare Company, you'd be a wimp if you didn't say yes, please. So I did. And you went on, and um, I saw um, your cure, Anne, because you were in it as well, in, as, as the uh, sort of a factotum part. You, you, you see, so small was cure, that you had to remind me what the guy was called. I mean, I, I didn't remember. <laughs> Um, but you weren't just, you know, off, off stage when you weren't um, doing Leah. You were still in the show. But um, my girlfriend at the time, because we were both at Sixth Form College, I think, uh, and we went on separate trips, and she went on the first trip, and she saw your Leah and said that they gave you a standing ovation and that she saw tears in your eyes. So that must have been quite a moment. It was very moving. It was very moving indeed. At the end of the play, 
um, you know, the lights go down and all the actors leave the stage and then all the actors come back in a bundle and they take a curtain call and then they disappear into the wings again, um, which is what happened on that occasion. And then the stage manager sort of tapped me on the shoulder and said, on you go. And I said, what, me by myself? And he said, well, Robert does. So, because Robert had done a, a couple of previews. Um, and so on I tottered and um, when you first walk on to a stage and the lights are up it's just black in front of you you can't see any of the audience but the further forward you get to take your curtain call um, you begin to sort of move beyond that power of the lights and you, you see the people and on my way down walking down the stage I heard this strange noise from the auditorium and I wondered what it was and then I passed through that moment when I could uh, pass through the lights and saw the audience and they were all standing and uh, if I had a tear in my eye I think it was probably justified Wonderful but of course then when his gammy leg or whatever gets better you go back to playing Curan that must have been quite a curious dynamic well, it was. I mean, fortunately, I was um, playing uh, the Duke in um, uh, what's the thing called about the Jew? Um, um, yes, uh, the Merchant of Venice. Uh, the Merchant of Venice. Um, so I had a, a sort of a, a, a decent part to to hang on to. So I remember actually we we had. A, a lot of weeks at the RSC before any show actually hit the stage. Um, and although I was sort of working honestly almost by myself um, rehearsing Lear, learning the lines, rehearsing it, watching what was going on on the stage, rehearsing it, um, I wasn't doing very much. And I remember David Thacker directed um, The Merchant of Venice. And uh, he, he was using me because I'd worked a lot with David. When he wanted to demonstrate something, he was saying, Christopher, can you do this? And I said, on one occasion, I remember saying... It's nice to do some acting at last, because I really hadn't been doing any. You know, we were sitting around, um, and, and and soon all that was was very much put to right. But it was an extraordinary occasion, really, because um, I, I I didn't know Robert was ill so soon in in the season. It was a uh, I, I was at home here in in, in the cottage in, in the village here, and I was g- going out to do the shopping on a Monday morning before driving up to Stratford that night to play Curran. Um, and just as I was leaving I mean literally the door was open I was on the way out the phone went and I went in and this little stage manager's voice said Chris Robert's in hospital and I said oh I better come back then hadn't I and it was just like that and I I drove like a, a a lunatic up the M40 going through the words as I drove, anybody passing by and looking in would have seen this bad man gesticulating and shouting to himself in the car. And um, I got up to Stratford, and obviously they'd been trying to contact as many people as they could because it was a Monday and people had been away for the weekend, you see. And uh, some people were still missing. The one principal person who was missing was actually the director. He wasn't there. He knew I was going to do it, but he wasn't there. So I was, um, I was assisted by the assistant director, which I didn't think was very good. But nevertheless, 
And it was nice because you know the actors, and, and I didn't really know the other actors, and they certainly didn't know me because Curan, as you as you know, having seen it, is a, is a minuscule part, and um, and so I, I never had an opportunity because all the other actors are very much engaged in what they're doing and and the other shows they're in of really sort of socialising with them. So we really didn't know each other, uh, and there was this man who they didn't know who was suddenly going to step in um, and play the principal part in their show. And they would come up and say, uh, do you know it? And I said, well, we shall see. <laughs> um, which was rather fun. And, but, but they were tremendously supportive. And I remember um, the play starts without Leah. Um, and then there's a line, um, there's a trumpet sound. And then the line on stage says, the king, the king. And that's it. And you realise you're walking on to the stage of the Royal Shakespeare Company where the f a few quite good actors have been before you and you're going to play possibly the greatest Shakespearean role for an older actor, Hamlet being for the younger one. Um, and over to you, babe, you know. And uh, I remember my son, I, I, I had sort of worked in to the opening lines a pause quite deliberately he, he looks around the, the people gathered there and then gives a command to somebody to do something and I left a pause before choosing the person I was going to send off to do something and I remember my son came on the second night and he thought I'd dried <laughs> because I wasn't speaking, you know. It was wonderful. But none of them knew any of this was going to happen, you see. And the interesting thing about it was that the, the, the understudy system of the Royal Shakespeare Company then, I don't know whether it still is, but um, they didn't pay an awful lot of attention to you. And indeed, there was no obligation for me to go on before the first night because apparently there isn't. It's a sort of unwritten rule or something that you don't have to be an understudy until the, the show is actually opened properly, not previewed. But this first occasion was, in fact, a preview still. Um, and so when we came in to rehearse um, amongst ourselves, and there again, you know, when you are rehearsing as an understudy, not as Leah, but as an understudy, you're often rehearsing a scene with yourself, basically, because you be, could be playing more than one understudy part. Um, so it's, it's as shambolic as that sometimes. But do they give you a rehearsal? Well, no, do they? Heck. So we found ourselves rehearsing Leah in the top bar of the Royal Shakespeare Theatre, as it was then, whilst beer was being delivered at the other end. That sort of thing. <laughs> or perhaps we went into a dressing room, just me and an assistant director going through some of the speeches. Well, if you begin to do it, uh, Lear at full pelt in a dressing room, you burst the bulbs, really, you know. But I was living in a caravan outside Stratford on a farm, and so I went and I did it in the fields. So I was doing Lear in the fields, and nothing could be more appropriate. Um, no projection problems there. Well, well, absolutely, not. absolutely not. But of course, the other thing, you, you, you say no projection problems, no, you're right. But, you know, it's a hell of a big part. And suddenly to have to play it from start to finish, when all uh, the other things you're playing are so relatively small, and you're playing three performances on the trot, 
it takes it takes a toll of your voice if you're not very 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 careful. I mean, luckily they had sort of good voice teachers there, and, and they helped enormously. But you know, if, if if you're doing it, you can't hang back and say, "Oh, oh dear, 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 I must play a gentle dear tonight." You know, um, and, and that was one of the problems actually, which which you know later on when I played it at the Barbican, one overcame that because I was ready for it, but I wasn't ready for it on performance three. I don't think really. And having done that, having got them out of trouble, and and let's not forget as well, um, I recall the papers being full of it and saying, you know, yes, Robert Stevens uh, wasn't there, but his understudy acquitted himself superbly, and, you know, so you emerged with flying colours. Does that earn you favour? Did did, did, did you get offered a a better slew of parts the next time stuff came along? Did did, did anyone sort of give you a post-mortem and and say thank you? I mean, how how does does the fallout of a success? understudy uh, occur. I never heard from the casting department. I saw a quote they gave to the newspapers saying we're very proud of him, but I never heard from them until I did the understudy run, you know, when it came some weeks later. And then I got a letter congratulating me on my presence amongst um, a very talented understudy cast. Absolutely no mention of the real thing. I got a wonderful, I got a wonderful card from Cicely Berry. Cicely Berry is, is one of the one of the great voice teachers, and uh, she, she was uh, she wasn't in charge of voice any longer at Stratford, but she was certainly a consultant about it. Um, I hadn't met her. She sent me a card. I still have it of a rowing boat, and she congratulated me on the depth of my reading of the play. She didn't have to write to me. I didn't know her. I hadn't met her, and she did. And, and I was very moved by that, that particularly. Um, because that was coming from somebody who knew what the hell she was talking about, you know. It was tremendous. And you said the company were, did, did, did a fine thing for you as well? The, the, the company was superb. The company, um, on, the, on those first three performances, stood behind me at the curtain call, applauding. But the moving thing was that when I eventually um, was gifted the part... You know, when the notice went up on the board because of uh, Robert Stevens' indisposition, the remainder of the season, Leo will be played by Christopher Robbie, and, and that notice went up on the board. Um, after that, every single night, the cast behind me, when I took my curtain call, applauded. And I did say, you know, you don't have to do this. You know, thank you very much for doing it so far, but don't feel obliged. And they went on doing it in every single performance. And I thought that was that was wonderful. Um, Russell Beale, Simon, no, Russell, Simon Russell, Russell Beale, is yeah. going to play Lear in the next um, national season, I gather. Yes, and he was your he was uh, your Edgar. Absolutely, and I shall tap on his door. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you 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 said that I would recognise you at the station because of what you described as a ridiculous beard. I think it's a fine beard, <laughs> um, and that's because you're that's something I have experience of doing a doing a one man show. Well, that's right. Um, this village. Down Village in Kent um, is was the home of Charles Darwin, and when Charles Darwin uh, came back from the Galapagos on his famous um, journey there, uh, he spent a short time in London, and then he moved out here to Down House, just up the road, and uh, died here. So for forty years he was here writing all his great works, and um, some years ago. I, when I lost my hair and grew a beard and looked vaguely like Charles Darwin um, I decided to write a one man show about it 
and I sort of joined forces with um, uh, a friend of mine called Sean Street, with whom I'd worked before. Sh- Sean is a, is a writer and a poet and a professor of radio. And we created um, a show called Beyond Paradise. And um, I've been doing that since about 1998, something like that. Uh, all over the place. And uh, so, yes, I am the village Charles Darwin. <laughs> <laughs> well, and um, I don't know, we'll, we'll briefly, we will briefly, because um, although we've covered um, much, and I've taken up far too much of your time already, um, you did mention to me off camera that you, you, one of your latest things you did was a film with John Claude Van Damme. Yes, I did. Now, I did not know who John Claude Van Damme was until my son looked up the film that I was in. It's a film called Enemies Closer, which hasn't been released yet, and we made it in Sofia in um, Bulgaria. That was the country I was trying to remember of. Um, and then I met this John Claude Van Damme, and I was being told by my son, he was a very muscular guy, did sort of muscular parts. Well, I'm surprised. Um, I didn't really meet him, I just had a scene with him, um, which magnified the gulf between what I call the American style of uh, mumble acting. Yeah, man, what I want to do to you is knife you, you see, boy? All that sort of stuff. With um, the Rada way of acting. (laughs) Although I was playing an American. Um, which, which, which again I was quite chuffed um, at playing an American in an American movie surrounded by Americans who never once questioned my accent which I thought was rather good job done absolutely, um, absolutely. so do you have any uh, unfulfilled ambitions or anything you would like to do or anything you look back on that you particularly think you nailed no I, I, I'd rather sort of we have a little theatre here which um, uh, we've been running now for about ten years it's a, it's a, a theatre for professional performers um, and it started off with my Darwin play uh, I've subsequently done another one man show um, w- w- which is called Old Herbaceous uh, about an old gardener reminiscing about his life from before the First World War until after the Second and, um, and then I've uh, just written another show <laughs> about Jesus and this is a show written by a man who doesn't go to church and if he does go to church he comes out feeling rather angry and because of that I've written a play about Jesus putting the Bible right that sort of stuff you know it's, it's a sort of I, I call it a slantendicular view of the man from Nazareth when, when I worked in Norfolk a long long time ago um, I, I lived on a farm with my wife we were newly married and there was a, a lovely old stockman looked after the pigs called Reggie. And uh, one day my wife um, had somehow let the, the airing uh, frame fall against the bathroom door so we couldn't open the bathroom door into the bathroom. And so we had to go take a ladder and get in through the bathroom window. But in order to do that, the ladder had to pass over a glass house extension, which was a bit dicey. And I remember Reggie coming and saying, Oh... That's a bit of a slantendicular entry, isn't it? <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, and I love that word, slantendicular. So I called it that, sort of a view from the side, so to speak. Yes, yeah. very nice. Yeah. 
Um, well, we are in the 50th year of Doctor Who, which started on the 23rd of November 1963, the day after Kennedy's assassination. Do you remember where you were for that? Yes, I do. Absolutely. I knew exactly know where I was, and that's another extraordinary thing. My mother used to take in paying guests, and many of the paying guests were from the Lebanon. And uh, because of this, we had been invited to a soiree at the Lebanese embassy. And so we were in the Lebanese embassy, and one of the people present was the American ambassador. And uh, suddenly there was a rather horrid silence, and the American ambassador left in a hurry. And that was when Kennedy had been assassinated. Well, he hadn't, actually, because when the ambassador left, we didn't know whether he was dead or alive. It was as early as that, in the, and, and there I was in the Lebanese embassy. Well, and uh, 50 years later, we've convened to do a podcast because of Doctor Who, and uh, you've kindly given your time for free, and the fans listening haven't had to pay for it, have you, fans? So therefore, we're asking you to dig deep and uh, uh, donate to a charity that I'm going to ask Christopher to nominate. The Stroke Association. That'll do. That'll do. And uh, my final question, because it's Doctor Who's 50th anniversary, is to those listening fans, do you have a message to the fans that have watched you playing the carcass and the cyber leader and are still watching Doctor Who today? Bless you all. Christopher Robbie, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much. That's brilliant. Thank you. That was great. Christopher's charity that you can donate to if you would like to is the Stroke Association, www.stroke.org.uk. Well, I hope you enjoyed that. I most certainly did. A splendid fellow. Uh, on forthcoming Who's Rounds, we have uh, a costume designer, maybe two actually, uh, a director, and a production behind the scenes person. Uh, and the latter two actually live in the same house. But until then, this podcast needs you. So if you have any feedback, opinions, tip-offs, suggestions, relatives who were once in Doctor Who, abuse, uh, proposals of marriage, uh, useful recipes, please send them to podcast at bigfinish.com. Podcast at bigfinish.com. And that would be much appreciated. You can follow me on Twitter at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. That's at Toby Haydoke, T-O-B-Y-H-A-D-O-K-E. And my website, which has a blog and all sorts of other scrumptious delights, is at www.tobyhaydoke.com. Sometimes I think you're probably the finest ship ever to have sailed the vortex. Am I were. So now we know. Now we know for sure. But why are they here, hmm? Why are all the doctors here? 
Hello, my dear. Doctor. What is it, Nissa? Here. Look. In the doll's house, what? Look through the window. Come on, Ace! Run! Back to the TARDIS! What's happened? Where am I? You're in the TARDIS. How do you do? I beg your pardon? Oh, no need to. I'm the Doctor, and this is... I am Leela. All of them? They were you? Past five, seventeen, the twenty-third of November, nineteen sixty-three. The twenty-third of November, nineteen sixty-three. Fifty-nine A Barnsfield Crescent, Totten, Hampshire. Crescent, Totten, Hampshire, England. Earth. Come fiddling about and get on with it. Charlie, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. We'll come back for you. You hear me, Charlie? Doctor, no. You appear to be some kind of boy. All this cloak and dagger business. You're clearly up to no good. By all means, please do come out to play, Doctor. I'm waiting for you.